The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And uh, I can make a pretty good lightsaber noise. Ooh, do your lightsaber noise. (laughs) What's happening in that film? Oh, no, backflip. There we go. Uh, this is the podcast where we do nothing but Foley. Actually, this, That'd be very appropriate for this, th- this ties into what uh, what we're going to be covering in this episode. Uh, Star Wars revolutionized, among many other things, sound design. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the sounds you hear in Star Wars uh, were pioneered specifically for Star Wars. They were made by, what was his name? Ben uh, Burt. Ben Burt. I almost said Bill Burt. Yeah, he, uh, was a, he was a young uh, uh, sound effects artist mm-hmm. uh, who was... Brought onto the project and really took. He, ben Bird thought it was incredibly important to use as little as possible from a sound library, which was standard industry practice. Mm-hmm. We've recorded so many gunshots over the years. Why would you need to record more? Just go to the library and pick some out. We have so many screams and, and the, airplanes yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You don't need anything else. Ben Burt thought it was important to actually make sure that every single thing in Star Wars, from the completely original sound effects like lightsabers to stuff that had been done before, like, you know, laser fire and stuff mm-hmm. like that, sound unique to the film, sound uh, and give the film a unique and immersive soundscape. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a little bit of charm to recognizing certain foley sure uh there's a like a, a, a there's an opening creak noise like a creaky door mm-hmm. that i've heard in like at least 20 different movies mm-hmm. a horror um, movie kind of thing like de- not even horror movies just like somebody opens a hatch and they use the exact same like yeah. creak noise or uh dropping pottery is another one you'll hear a lot oh like, uh, one of my favorites is in uh, the movie wet hot american summer where literally mm-hmm. every time someone tosses something off camera you hear the same pot breaking yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think that's this that yeah. that breaking what, pottery noise what's really one. fucking funny is that uh most of the time in wet hot american summer mm-hmm. like when they throw something they also hear a cat meow yeah and sergio just demonstrated that Thank you, sergio. <laughs> we have a little bit of our own live action foley going on right here uh, but yes, uh, although there is a charm to that, there is a lot more to be said for creating original sound effects. Uh, I think the uh, sound effect for um, the Millennium Falcon not starting in mm-hmm. Star Wars was like a World War II plane, but they like sort of warped it in, in a way. Oh, that one? I don't know. Yeah, like the, it was it was like an, a, a plane engine stalling, and I think yeah. they might have slowed it down a little bit and has... Because one of the jokes of the movie is that it, doesn't, it never starts correctly. Yeah, it sounds it's, it sounds like a jalopy. Yeah, like yeah. it sounds like <laughs> I flooded it. Hang on, and it's and it's also being driven by a, by Harrison Ford, just like in American Graffiti. Hey, there you go. Apropos, uh, however, there was one very notable uh, library sound effect. Mm-hmm. 
that made its way not just into Star Wars, but into a lot of other adventure films around and sort of related to Star Wars. Well, the use of this particular sound effect, Mm. which I assure you, you've heard. Mm. And you'll see why in a minute. The use of this particular sound effect had it's been used multiple times. It was part of a studio library, and it was in a lot of films like Them, the movie with the giant ants. Mm-hmm. But the way it was used in Star Wars, just got a little bit highlight moment, uh, led Ben Bird and other people to put it in tons of other movies. Mm-hmm. Lots of movies from George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and then other people who are inspired by Star Wars started putting it in more things. It's just a cute little throwaway joke. And you will hear it in everything. And that sound effect is the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, we've been using it this whole time. Oh, no, there's Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Uh, The funniest use of the Wilhelm scream was in a movie nobody saw. In fact, it's one of the only movies I was ever by myself in a theater to see. Literally no one but Whitney. Literally no one but Whitney. It was called Ratchet and Clank. It's based on a video game. It's an animated film. And... uh, there's a bit where a bunch of robots are attacking, but the robots are all like, they have character. They're kind of like buffoonish robots. And uh, one of them fell off of a balcony and you heard the Wilhelm scream. And another robot sort of rushed to the edge of the balcony and just yelled Wilhelm as they were falling. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two characters were never mentioned before and we never see them again. It's just this cute little throwaway gag in the middle of a big, big action sequence. It's a meta joke because this scream, and it's actually a series of screams uh, that all sound very similar. Uh, but uh, they're called the Wilhelm Scream because Ben Burt first heard the scream in a movie called The Charge at Feather River. But that is not the film that we are talking about today because although The Charge at Feather River... The, yeah, the Charge at, at Feather, Feather River, River... It's actually kind of hard to say fast. <laughs> Maybe that's why no one talks about that movie anymore. Uh, even though that's the movie that Ben Burt saw, and indeed uh, the scream in that movie was attributed to a character named Wilhelm, hence why it is called the Wilhelm Scream. Mm-hmm. The scream doesn't come from the charge at Feather River. The scream was originally recorded, as near as we can tell, by an actor slash musician named Sheb Woolley. You know Sheb Woolley. Yes. Because Sheb Woolley is the originator of the Purple People Eater. Yeah. You know, he was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying Purple People Eater. Mm. A one-eyed, one-horned, now, flying purple people eater. In the song, they say, Mr. Purple People Eater, what's your line? He says, eating purple people, and it sure is fine. Mm. Is the eater itself purple? No. No. Even though we don't know, mo- what, col- we don't know movie, what color it is. There's a movie called uh, uh, Purple People Eater. Yeah, where Chubby Checker plays the monster. And he's purple. Yeah, and he's that's, a purple furry thing. And that's bullshit. Because. Mm. He doesn't eat any purple people. He he does eat purple people, and because he's called the purple people leader because he eats purple people, mm. which means probably everyone listening to this song is pretty safe, unless you've been holding your breath for a really long time. Uh, yeah, he, he shouldn't be purple. They didn't do their research, and it shows. <laughs> it's like the Street Fighter movie where all of a sudden, like, Charlie is now Blanca, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Why is... Why is Dulcim like a mad scientist now? It's like no one did any research. No one cared about the canon of Purple People Eaters. Yeah, um, real shame. And the Purple People Eater canon matters about as much as the Street Fighter canon. Um, <laughs> you shut your mouth. There's so many people who are mad at you right now. That's, yeah, and, and they're all Street Fighter fans, and I could take them. Anyway, my point was this. <laughs> was, we got Apo- sidetracked. Apologies to Street Fighter We fans. got sidetracked to Sheb Woolley by Sheb mm. Woolley. But uh, Sheb Woolley uh, was one of the actors involved mm. in the making of the 1951 Western 
Western Florida. It takes place in the Everglades. <laughs> it's not really Western, it's, is it's it? It kind of wants to be a Western, it's got a, but it's not. It's got a cowboy in it. And, yeah. And and they fight the the Native Americans, but it's not a Western because it takes place in Florida. It's yeah, a I Southern. I don't know what the hell it is, but what it is is distant drums. Across the Florida Territory, ablaze with the long and bitter Seminole War, the famous jungle fighter, Captain Quincy Wyatt, leads a battalion over the peninsula to the Gulf of Mexico to destroy a Spanish fortress and bring the conflict to an end. But with his mission accomplished and a beautiful hostage in his charge, a new threat faced Captain Wyatt. For Okalon, the great Seminole chief had cut all avenues of escape but one. There's a reason you haven't heard about distant drums. If you've heard about it, you probably have heard about it because it's the originator of the Wilhelm scream. Uh, and there, there's a word for that, like mm. something that's famous for being famous. Mm. I, I forgot what the actual like uh, literary term is for that, but uh, yeah. that's that's what you know. You the only, only know about you it know, because you know, know you know the Wilhelm scream because of distant drums. You know distant drums because of the Wilhelm scream. Basically, uh, it's a footnote. We can just yeah. call it a footnote. It's a footnote, and uh, I think we're going to be getting into sort of what distant drums is about, what kind of film it is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's also, not completely unrelated to star Wars beyond the Wilhelm scream. I think it's indicative mm -hmm. of a lot of cinema that yeah, inspired and, star and that, Wars. That's, that's what I was about to get into that. Yeah. It, it actually, uh, is, is very much in keeping with a lot of the adventurous spirit that star Wars was drawing from. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the same time, the reason people don't talk about it is because, it's it's horrendously racist. It's uh, astoundingly racist. Yeah. It's an incredibly it's an incredibly racist motion picture. Mm. Um and uh yeah, actually we none of us had seen distant drums before we decided to do this podcast. We did it just for the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. I was hoping it would be frothy and light and fun. Uh um, it is not. It is it, it a is... really rough sit, especially by modern standards yeah, it, of it, empathy, it... because man, the heroes of this movie are the bad guys. If if you if I mean if you really want to be the kind of like you know, pencil pushing film student type mm -hmm. and point out that it's actually really quickly edited mm -hmm. and the action sequences are really incredibly well photographed, especially yeah. for a film from nineteen fifty one. Uh, it you know the it's it's really excitingly paced. Yeah, you can you can do that. There are structural elements of it that are not mm. incompetent and are in fact mm. well produced, but in, produced in service of what? And the answer is racism. So it's, race, oh, I can yeah, only get so excited by it. It it's uh, it's yet another colonialist fantasy. Uh, it's it stars Gary Cooper, and Gary Cooper is a. a movie cowboy through and through he almost looks like Roy Rogers mm -hmm. uh, like a, a really wholesome I, cowboy it guy. feels like they're going off of the Alan Quarterman uh, uh, mold yeah. here that's sort of uh, uh, noble Crockett. man of the land yeah, yeah. kind of thing Luca you want you to get out of the counter or, or, or like Davy Crockett and there's a long tradition of that kind of uh, city born Caucasian male who is raised who I guess either is raised in the wild or abandons uh, urban life mm -hmm. in order to live at one with the land. Yeah. And they become these sort of brave frontiersmen who get involved with, uh, well, let's just say it, manifest destiny. They're just sort of pu yeah. pushing out onto on, yeah. into the opposite coast. Like, they're basically there to say, everything's okay, I'm here now. Yeah, I'm, I'm and I'm here. like, I'm the we didn't need you. I'm the bold hero. I can give you all the knowledge you need about the land because I've been living here. This mm. is something we got into with Dersu Uzala, which mm. is 
a interesting qu- double feature with quadrillion this. times more humane and sensitive yeah. uh, than something like Distant Drums, which is uh, evil. Br- yeah, brash and evil. Yeah. Uh, because uh, this Gary Cooper character is hired to essentially wipe out those Seminole Indians who live in Florida. Yeah. Um, we're, we're going to be as careful as we, as we can with the terminology. I know mm. uh, the preferred nomenclature for um, you know, First Nation people, mm. um, there isn't like a, a unilaterally agreed upon term. Yeah, I, we want to use whatever that term is. We mean every term with respect. Mm. If we are using, if we ever use the wrong one, we yeah, need I, to use the wrong right one. And I, I want to be corrected on this because yeah. I, I got, I heard uh, Sherman Alexie, a, a Native American author, uh, he he did that movie Smoke Signals. If you yeah. remember that one, uh, talk about how Indian was actually the preferred term. Mm-hmm. That's how uh, that's the term they use on reservations. Right. And so I, I've said Indian, but I don't want to be insensitive. And if mm-hmm. the nomenclature that was many years ago, so if the nomenclature is different or preferred, mm-hmm. if a different term is uh, preferred, then I'll start using that one. Indeed. Uh, uh, please correct so, us if we are wrong. So yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to be a, a dickhead yeah. here. I'm but yes. trying to think this out. But the plot of the movie is mm. Gary Cooper has been uh, enlisted by the U.S. military in the early mid-1800s. It's around a, the time Zachary Taylor was a, yeah. a general before he was president. It's, it's eight, 1840s yeah. specifically. But, yeah. um, and he has been enlisted <laughs> to uh, take out, there is a Spanish, old Spanish fort Mm-hmm. Very heavily fortified uh, in Florida, <clears throat> they're going to take it all out, kill all the the, the people inside, and then uh, it turns out they have a bunch of hostages in there. They're going to rescue them and they're going to drag them through the Florida Everglades, miles and miles and miles and miles. Mm-hmm. While uh, the Seminoles, uh, whose land, of course, they originally stole, uh-huh. uh, and, and, and who are uh, all played by white guys. Uh, uh, no, actually, not, oh, all not. Play with, not all played by white guys. The lead character, the lead. Uh, mm. uh, 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 I hesitate to say villain, but let's say antagonist right. uh, is played by a white guy. But actually, a lot apparently a lot of the uh, cast was actually Seminole Indians. Oh, okay. Right. Um, the, the the main guy clearly a white guy. Clearly not. Yeah. Um, according to what I've researched, if I'm wrong about that, mm-hmm. I apologize. I'd love to be corrected. Uh, but uh, yeah, so they're being chased through the Florida Everglades, and in addition to being um, hunted by people with a very legitimate grievance. <laughs> Uh, they also have to brave uh, various elements of the wilds. And in one uh, key scene, uh, which is the most famous uh, early instance of the Wilhelm scream, uh, someone is eaten by an alligator? Crocodile. Alligators. Alligator. Uh, alligators in America. Alligators in America. Okay. Yeah. I just want to do a movie called Alligators in America. And they're just on a tourist trap. Hmm. Uh, a tourist, tourism trip? A vacation. <laughs> and they're just going across a America. tourism trip. <laughs> I don't speak well. Um, so uh, someone gets eaten by an alligator and he lets out the Wilhelm scream. But actually, when they were recording uh, you know, the various post-production elements of the film, they had a whole bunch of different takes of that one scream. And the Wilhelm scream can be heard earlier in the film's first action sequence. Yeah, and it's during the shootout. Yeah, it's a big shootout here, a couple it's of a, different uh, Wilhelms, yeah. but the key Wilhelm that everyone is thinking about and copying is from a little later in the film when someone gets eaten by an alligator. Mm. Um, and, and, that's, yeah. and that's that. You know, yeah. there's, there's, it's a yeah. remake of a film called Objective Burma, which is more of a war picture, um, mm. more contemporary. It was also directed by the same filmmaker, Raoul Walsh. Uh, Raoul Walsh has you know a ton of different films to his credit. Um, he was a bit of a... Uh, one of those directors who directed just kind of everything mm. um some well-known no. some very 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 obscure he directed uh 
White Heat is probably his best and most uh, uh, famous mm. film. It's a really good one, too. White oh, Heat. Excellent uh, film. Genuinely excellent film. He, but he's, he also, also, uh, he's also an actor. And uh, Oh, yeah. Let's get into this. This is kind of fun. And, I by, say, and we say that with I, all and the I think, fucking and, sarcasm. Yeah, I, I think you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. Um, he played John Wilkes Booth in Birth of a Nation. One of the most <laughs> racist things ever no, put on celluloid. I, I have, I've said this before. I'm done with Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Uh, I've been done with it for a little while now. Uh, there is no reason to watch it. You can study its significance because it was a big hit mm-hmm. in terms of how it influenced uh, hate groups and the way they think. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, a significant piece of the puzzle when you're trying to solve how hateful rhetoric has perpetuated mm-hmm. in America. Uh, it, also However, gets, it also gets a lot of credit for being things like the first narrative feature film, and actually that's not strictly true. Mm-hmm. So the first film to use cross-cutting, and that's also that's not true. also not true. Uh, so fuck Birth of a Nation. Yeah, so d- don't watch Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Even we're if past it. If, We've learned yeah. enough. We've all learned enough. This, this information is not hidden yeah. in ancient tomes and libraries now. We should all know better than to give Birth of a Nation mm. more than the absolute barest asterisk minimum time of day. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like Birth of a Nation. It was a thing. We can move mm. on. The only thing I ever want to hear from it again is when I rewatch Black Klansman, which mercilessly destroys it yeah. and show yeah. why it is absolute yeah. horror nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, it's the worst. Uh, and, uh, and the director of Distant Drums played the guy who killed Lincoln... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's no, double, I don't know. Double trouble. I don't know. Um, listen, listen. Yeah. It's easy to draw a very direct line mm. between that acting gig and this movie. I do not know Raul Walsh's personal history. But the point is, he made this insanely racist movie. Mm. And the movie is racist beyond its simple construct. And, like, and there's it's not actually, like, like, you look at Birth of a Nation, that, that movie came out in the 1910s. Yeah. This movie came out in 1951. Yeah. Like, we were well beyond the point when we should have been making movies. Oh, I mean, we never should have been making movies like this. But 1951 seems really late. Well, because... Especially one that's a film that's this violent. When you have sort of Mm -hmm. like, let's call them like a boy's adventure story, like a Davy Crockett story, Uh which are actually a lot more sensitive and humane uh, um, they care. They care about the wilderness. And yeah, the, the wilderness, and, yeah. and then the characters. And uh, Davy Crockett would often, you know, maybe not Davy Crockett, but I've, I remember sort of this archetypal white character who would be sort of the 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 go between between sort mm-hmm. of like, like the encroaching white people and and the natives. Uh, like uh, was, Natty Bumpo. Na- there you the, go. Uh, Natty in Bumpo. The, in the Last of the Mohicans, which. Mm-hmm. Also have problems, but mm. that was the idea of the character, at any rate. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this this idea of uh, going to war against the Cherokee Nation, or going, you know, yeah. d- depicting Indians as sort of just these amorphous mass of of just evil semi-animal people, yeah, uh, that just want to kill you. Yeah, they have been an entire group of people. Yeah. In this particular subgenre of, and I realize that the actual like geography of the film doesn't make it feel like a western, but mm. functionally it's a western. I'm just going to call it a western. Yeah, so it's, it's where we get like cowboys and Indians. That phrase, yeah, yeah, like that phrase. And when we use that phrase, we are talking about people who are 
diametrically opposed. Mm. Like, oh well, if we, I'm, I will be the the, I'll the, be the cowboys, cowboy, yeah. and you'll be the. And the implication is that one of them is good and one of them is bad. Yeah, it's, like it's wicked. Cop, cops and robbers. Is yeah, one. yeah. But it's it's wicked and cruel, and it reduces an entire group mm. of people to not just an ugly stereotype, but to abject villainy. Mm. And this is the kind of movie where. That the forces all that. Yeah, in which in which the Seminoles will be referred to by horrifying terms like devils. Mm. And it's genuinely hard to listen to, especially from a character like Gary Cooper plays, um, who married a First Nation woman, had a child with her, mm-hmm. and in some respects seems to have adopted their culture, but he will drop that at like a dime. Just throw a dime at him, tell him the government wants it to, and he will go slaughter. Mm. And that completely undermines any attempt you tried to, any attempt you may have made to make Mm. Gary Cooper seem like, you know, like someone in the middle, someone who's like got one foot in both cultures. And uh, Mm. no, he very clearly, and we'll talk about the plot in a minute. He very clearly makes a horrifying choice to exclusively care about white people. Yeah. And there's a bit at the end of the movie, which it was bad enough, but I was literally, I had to pause the movie. (laughs) I was so shocked at how fucking horrible something Gary Cooper said was. Yeah. yeah. Um, But, yeah, yeah, so. Don't repeat the line of dialogue. I'm not not going to read the line of dialogue, but I will will present the sentiment because it's fucking horrifying. But, um. So, yeah, so Gary Cooper is recruited for for this big mission. and, And actually the structure is something that has been, I think, played with many, many times before. It's mm. a movie in which the protagonists have initially one big military success, and then they spend the rest of the film on the run. Now, mm. you may notice that. I think I think one of the best films to use that structure was Predator. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that this, yeah. this type of uh, colonialist mission picture mm-hmm. uh, has been coded within science fiction yeah uh in in recent years and and we we go back to aliens a lot how they're called yeah. colonialist marines and it's a colonial well, story they're called colonial marines, colonial but that's the idea yeah, yeah they're, the, they're calling out colonialism they're yeah. calling out colonial colonialism i think uh, james cameron is smart enough to know what he's doing he's actually kind of punishing the colonialists uh, cameron and mctiernan uh, alike both of those mm-hmm. movies introduce you to a group of macho badasses and we get to see him act and be kind of macho badasses and then it proceeds to destroy them yeah yeah. absolutely destroy them and i think both movies argue with some cause especially Mm. predator yeah Yeah. predator is a satire it is it's 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 supposed to be taking down those macho guys not not to show that the monster is such a threat that it could kill macho guys Mm -hmm. but to show that machismo is meaningless that whole scene that everyone loves in predator Mm. where they unload all of their guns in the forest and Mm. hit nothing yeah yeah that's a symbol for impotence (laughs) they're 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 weak Mm. (laughs) they have nothing it sucks um yeah john mctiernan was a clever filmmaker in that regard Mm. um and he also undermined a lot of a lot of uh macho tropes and die hard as well yeah but um, uh, but a lot of those macho tropes were just presented straightforward at one point in movies like distant drums yeah and when you look at what Distant Drums is actually arguing, it's, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it's a white supremacist movie. It is. About how the white people are the only ones worth saving. Yeah. And so when we see movies like Aliens, we're actually getting a taste of something really horrendous about American film history. It's actually really fascinating to look at something like Distant Drums and actually mm-hmm. see how, even though the only real direct connection that we have to Star Wars is the Wilhelm scream, mm-hmm. Distant Drums is so indicative of the kind of movies that, like, 
young action movie enthusiasts probably would have been watching en masse mm. in the era and not questioning and how we see how it influences their films and I think it's fair to say that you know a lot of the movies that were inspired by this aren't nearly as racist but it's interesting to see how all of these racist storytelling tropes get translated particularly into sci-fi and fantasy wherein mm. um you know there's a whole group of people who are uh, violent and brutal and don't seem to have uh, any meaningful thoughts in their heads and that goes all way back before this to colonialist, colonialist literature mm. from decades if not centuries before and we see that in something like Tolkien's uh, Orcs and Urukai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are portrayed as just bad guys. The, you can they're, have they're that, literal monsters. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the simplicity with which we reduced actual people in order to make their destruction uh, not Pal only palatable, palatable yeah. not only palatable, but yeah. for cheerworthy. You know, but yeah, yeah uh, to make it rousing mm -hmm. uh, is something that if we strip away the reality, the part that actually makes it brutally offensive, we can keep that trope. Yeah, and that's what and that's what a lot of movies have done. Star Wars has elements of this. If you think about it, there's a lot of types of people, a lot of types of uh, species that are not portrayed with a lot of nuance and, mm. and tact or even dignity. Uh, and if those were actual groups of people, mm. people would be saying, hey, they don't really treat the huts too good or Toydarians all look pretty bad or mm. the Tusken Raiders are treated as these absolute monster people. Mm. If those were actual people, if we accepted the reality of Star Wars, Tusken Raiders would be furious with how they're portrayed in those movies. Because they're people. <laughs> um. They're actual characters. They're sentient beings. But because we have taken the humanity away from them. And turn, turn them into literal creatures. They're not yeah, humans. Yeah. We're, we are keeping a lot of racist and other, well, and other reductive mm. and horrible uh, uh, ideas alive. It's yeah. It's a weird thing to do if you think about it. It's you think it's weird, but it's it's actually it's weird, but it's also really common. Yeah, uh, very common. Like, well, and this is something that comes up all the time in conversations about yeah. sort of PG thirteen violence, for instance. Uh, okay, let's say you want to show how how virile and strong your superhero character is. Well, you put the Hulk in the middle of a room with like fifty killer robot men. Yeah, and he can just wail on those things. Yeah, and that's exciting to watch. It's violent. He's and if those he's, robots he's got rage, that's probably mm. not a healthy way to express his opinion, his feelings. Mm. But you know, it's yeah. it's it's a power fantasy. You want to think you could just wail on a room full of people. In your mind, the people are being killed. Yeah. But the movie isn't killing people. It's it's taking the curse off of it by turning them into robots that yeah. aren't aren't, aren't necessarily alive. Yeah. So they're just smashing machinery essentially. There's still a part of our brains that is feeding on that violence, whether or not it's people. Yeah. Now there's a way to portray that if there were really people and the Hulk was like smashing it and getting like blood on his fists and mm -hmm. eating like biting human well, beings' look, look heads at, off. Look at look at here's uh, a perfect example of that. Uh, look at the original uh, the Kingsman. The yeah, there Service. you go. There's a scene in the Kingsman where uh, Colin Firth is brainwashed into killing a room full of dozens, if not a hundred people, mm. and they play Freebird over it as though it was badass yeah. and not a horrifying slaughter of. And they portray them all as racist, horrible people, but that doesn't mean they deserve but to be murdered. There's no curse taken off of that. Yeah, it it's, actually is just unpleasant and gross. It's, it's, I hate that movie so much. And this um, is something that we're but, talking about right now, like especially when we talk about how police uh, have been uh, treated 
in uh, in the media, mm-hmm. for example. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people are finally starting to pay more attention to, uh, which is that a lot of the fiction that we have been absorbing over the years about police officers portrays police officers not just in a heroic light, but in a heroic light when they do things that in real life would be horrifying. Yeah. When they do things like beat up suspects, mm. torture people, frame people. Um, mm. And someone pointed this out on Twitter. I wish I could remember who it was. Um, but I think it might have been Jonathan Harris. Um, but uh, they were talking about how they were trying to think of like good police officers in fiction. And mm-hmm. you start thinking about Die Hard and then you realize that uh, uh, the the cop, uh, uh, Officer Powell. Okay, yeah. In, yeah. in that movie. Forgot, forgot his name. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, uh, his whole backstory is that he shot a kid. Yeah. That's his whole thing. And the movie plays that as, that's sad, mm-hmm. but at the end of the movie, he gets to heroically murder again. The important thing isn't his, like, that, redemption that, for killing a child. That's the important thing for is the that right he's, reason. Yeah, yeah, and now he's able to murder again, mm-hmm. and that makes him a good cop. And that is a weird way to frame that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly fucking weird. And really inappropriate when you absorb these things on mass. So a lot of the real ugly shit that we were encouraged to just blindly accept in movies like Distant Drums persists to this day in other insidious ways, some more directly than others. Yeah, Every time you see Mel Gibson kill a guy without any due process in a Lethal Weapon movie, mm-hmm. that should be fucking horrifying. Right. But like, I'm not saying you can't find some, some entertainment out of it, but you should really not be absorbing it we've, blindly. We've been encouraged to indulge in this uh, need to murder... The other, essentially. Yeah, the bad uh, guys. The, uh, uh, the quote, the bad guy. Because that's it's, what we have in yeah. the world, and, bad guys. And and you know what? I, I'll, I'll just say it, because this is part of us, this is part of our human nature, I think. Mm. I don't think this is just something uh, unique to like the American character from the 1950s no, onward. No, I think no. this is something very fundamental about human humanity. Mm-hmm. But we do have... We can be a very violent species. We, we can be a very violent species. And I think we have these very violent fantasies within us. Mm-hmm. And watching murder on screen can be exhilarating. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I think it matters is how you frame it. How you frame it. I I love those Indiana Jones movies. How many people does he kill in Last Crusade? Like, 13? Yeah. Like, just from his direct actions, he murders 13 people. Mm-hmm. That's a serial killer. <laughs> Oh, mass! Technically, a mass murderer. No, he t- like one right after the other. It doesn't yeah, but, all at once. But, uh, no, but no, mass isn't all at once. Mass yeah. is the total accumulation of murders. Right. Serial killer requires a specific pattern of behavior. Okay, like it's serialized. Yeah, like no. you have to keep doing the same thing over and over no, again. again. And mass, like it, natural born killers, uh-huh. they're not serial killers. They're mass murderers. Okay, because fair. they just kill everyone every which way. Right. 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 Now, it's also in, horrifying. But it, Indiana Jones is a very direct descendant, mm-hmm. even more so than anything you see in like console or anything in Star Wars. Mm-hmm from the Gary Cooper character in Distant Drums. Sure. He is that hat that you know, he wears the same kind of hat. Mm. He has the same kind of uh, worldliness. He goes to other countries and, you know, looks for uh, exotic artifacts and kills a bunch of people. Actually, you know, I was watching this movie and there is a, a subplot in this film as they are tromping through the wilderness uh, where one of the women that they rescue who's, oh, I want to make sure I give the, the actress uh, her credit here. Oh gosh, I lost it. I, I had it I right had in front of me. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, Mary Alden is the actress's name. Uh, Mary Alden uh, plays a woman who they rescue at the beginning and she's uh, taken 
through the wilderness with them, and over the time, and over time, she develops uh, a romantic relationship with Gary Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reminded a little bit because at first she's seen as kind of a fancy pants, mm-hmm. and then we realize that she isn't. But for a second, it's pretty indicative of the way that Indiana Jones and Willie interact in Temple of Doom. Oh yeah, and a little in, bit. And yeah. indeed, there's a city. Uh, there's a there's a dude from the city, like a, a, a navy lieutenant from mm-hmm. up north. Uh, who's unfamiliar with the territory. And there's actually a scene where he's talking with Gary Cooper and there's like a deadly snake like hanging out behind him, much like that scene in Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Is it a direct shout out? Uh, maybe, honestly, a lot of the things in this movie are just kind of cliches that were pretty popular by the time the movie came out. I don't want to give Distant Drums a lot of credit here. It is a fucking remake after all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's indicative of a genre that clearly had an impact. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Indiana Jones is absolutely, if not a direct descendant of Gary Cooper in this movie, at least a cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think uh, what uh, Steven Spielberg was drawing on was actually something a little bit more kid friendly. Oh like, yeah. Even though Indiana Jones does murder a bunch of people and that's a violent fucking movie and mm-hmm. people's faces melt off and mm-hmm. kids have nightmares, there's some. There is a kind of. Uh, Childlike wonderment to what the proceedings and something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, specifically uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. Once you get into Temple of Doom territory, mm-hmm. where they start uh, bringing in the thuggy cult, mm-hmm. uh, which was popularized uh, in fiction. Uh, it was a real thing of memory serves, but I don't know. It, it was, I don't yeah. know the details in reality, but in fiction, it's, it was from the movie Gunga Din, which. If we were doing Indi- like episode zero of Indiana Jones, we'd have to cover Gunga Den, mm. but I don't. I think we can avoid it here. Um, but uh, yeah, basically, it's just a matter of we're going to go to India and we're going to say that these people are cool, but they're also like impoverished and they need like all the white people to help them, mm. and these people are evil and they're going to do horrible things like rip hearts out and it's okay to kill them, mm. according to Indiana Jones on yeah. mass and. That's some fucked up shit, if you really think about it. There's some really cool stuff in Temple of Doom, but Temple of Doom transports a lot of the ugliness. It, that a little Indian, bit more direct. Yeah, like, Indiana Jones has some of it. Like, I'm sorry, Raiders of the Lost Ark has some of that. Mm-hmm. Last Crusade has less of that, mm-hmm. because they just don't meet that many other, like, non-white people in that movie. Mm-hmm. But... Well, but yeah. there's, there's also like that dinner scene. Oh, look, the, uh, pe- people from faraway exotic lands. Yeah. It's not far away. They live there. Yeah. <laughs> there's 500 million of us. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Can't claim us. We live here. Yeah. Um, so it, it's all baked in. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're watching the latest syndromes, it, it, it's just right there on the surface. It's just right there. It's not hidden anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not someone like George Lucas who I think remembers seeing this kind of movie and is just cherry picking the stuff that he likes the stuff that isn't completely off-putting mm. and trying to transport as much of that as possible safely into a new environment where it can not only be less toxic, there's still some toxicity in Star Wars and beyond, but mm. way less. Yeah. And also more fun because there's not all of this really fucking disgusting yeah. subtext or text uh, in this case. Yeah. Uh, now, this story, there's actually nothing wrong with it in terms of like an action movie template. It's, yeah. a, it's about going into dangerous territory to rescue someone. Mm-hmm. Then that's and that that can be an exciting story. And, there's a uh, lot of there's, decent set pieces in. There's here. a lot of war movies that are set there. And uh, Operation Burma, exactly yeah, what this is exactly. based on. When, when there's and when there's like when you're staging good guys and bad, and of course this goes to something larger about the immorality of war. But when there's good guys and bad guys during wartime, mm-hmm. at least like the mission is a little more clear cut. 
and there's, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, there's rules to war. Yeah, uh, there, I, there, there are standards you know, for if, combat, there are standards of behavior, and there is a clear indication, especially in something like a World War II movie, mm-hmm. where the Nazis are... It's like not also a, it's, morally it's not a yeah. different. It's not a difference of opinion. That's um, just fucking horrifying Merton. evil that's being perpetrated, mm-hmm. and it needs to fucking stop. Yeah, so... So if you were to transport just the story into a modern science fiction movie, I mean, I've, I feel like that's a, like a little bit of what uh, the movie Rogue One might have been getting at. Oh, I actually even though think that was a little bit, a little bit uh, more uh, jumbled. I, I think there's I, a lot more going on in Rogue, Rogue One without see, focus. I actually see a lot more of the DNA of that in The Last Jedi, where mm. it starts off with this big kind of military victory where people are sacrificed, people die, but, you know, in Poe actually is able to destroy like a battleship or something mm. i forget what they're called i'm not gonna win the star wars schmodown anytime soon um but then they spend the rest of the movie on the run mm. and there's infighting and there are practical uh problems and there are people who split off to uh to do other tactical things and then it all ends with basically they end up fortifying themselves and mm. making one last possibly hopeless stand and much like distant drums the last jedi ultimately boils down to uh, one person from each side having a one-on-one battle. Mm. Last Jedi is well. Distant drums filtered its way through to Last Jedi pretty and, clearly. And it's it's still filtering. And yeah. yeah the, I find the, these sort of legacy films a little bit curious because yeah. when we lose the origin, but we still have the traditions. Yeah. And the traditions become such a part of the film vernacular that it's kind of difficult to challenge them. It's important to remember those origins. Yep. And it's important to see how those origins might be very unsavory. It's important to challenge things, even and, if yeah. they seem like they've been there forever. The worst like defense for anything is that's the way it's always been done. Yeah, yeah. It's completely meaningless, because why would the first thing we thought of be the thing that we get stuck with for forever? Mm. Like, we've been around for decades, if not hundreds of years, after a lot of these tropes that we're still following. We can switch. Yeah. <laughs> like, we can make a conscious decision to do different stuff and to do it better. Like, mm. we don't have to be as reductive yeah. about uh, people and cultures as we often are in sci fi and mm. fantasy. We mm. can actually no. have more nuanced takes than something like a direct antecedent of, uh, or uh, is it antecedent I'm working for? Antece- antecedent. A, a, a descendant, uh, let's say that, for, right. like, for sake of clarity, of something like Distant Drums. Okay. Uh, when you look at something like Star Wars, which uh, was also filtered through those sort of Saturday morning serials, which were very kid friendly, yeah, that kind of nuance, that kind of moral nuance, I think, uh, wasn't really a part of those serials because mm. moral absolutism is really easy for a young audience to absorb. Yeah, here's a bad guy. He's got you know e- evil eyebrows and claws. Mm-hmm. It's, it's easy to pick him out. Uh, and that's. I'll let you finish. Sorry, I haven't right. thought about that. Yeah, and uh, that kind of moral absolutism—there are good guys and there are bad guys—is mm-hmm. something that plays out every day in almost every film. The, it's there's, the it's, yeah. uh, I mean, f- f- especially like any like mainstream Hollywood film, especially action movies, mm. where there's good guys and there's bad guys. And sometimes they might toy with uh, like a shade of gray. A villain might say, "We're not so different, you or I," before the hero kills them anyway. Uh, it never happens where the villain says, we're not so different, you are. In fact, we're fighting for the same thing, really. And the hero says, golly, you're right. I'm, I'm going to help you. Like, 
wouldn't that have been great in, in like yeah. one of those Marvel movies? Like, yeah. oh, no, Dormammu, you're going to turn back time. Yeah, but look at all the shit you humans have done. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know what? I'm on your side. Yeah, we need to talk about this. Yeah. I've seen that played as a joke in a lot of comedies, for example. Yeah, because it it, it juxtaposes. It, it bucks mm. your tr- the tradition. But something like Star Wars is not really. Yeah. It's whimsical so, at times, but it's not really funny. And it's it? kind of curious that a lot of people who have grown up watching Star Wars still love it. And it's still expect and demand and can't even really think of a Star Wars without that moral absolutism. Well, and here's the other thing, though, is that when we think about um, the, the, how we make the art... The light side and the dark side, after When we think about how we make art, we mm-hmm. have to be careful about, especially considering the larger audience that we reach and the more people who are encouraged to consume something without thinking about it, to treat it as escapist entertainment mm-hmm. and just let it just info dump directly into their cerebellum. Um, when you're dealing with moral absolutism, if you're not absolutely careful you can make some really disturbing connections yeah, in which yeah. something that's considered, okay, well, this is morally absolutely uh, bad. I'm like, okay, that's morally absolutely bad. Uh, did you connect that to an entire group of people who are real? Mm. You did, didn't you? <laughs> that's some fucked up moral absolutism. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of bad in general, but it, Star Wars has done this as well. Like with some characters like the Nemoidians who mm. are... Uh, they're, they're Asian stereotypes. They are. Yeah. It's kind of fucked up, actually. There isn't a lot There's, of... And this is one of the reasons why later films, more recent films in the Star Wars canon, have been making, at the very least, a concerted effort to have uh, more visibility of people from different uh, uh, cultures and races in order to uh, kind of trying, remove trying take part the, of that. They're trying to take the curse off of what has yeah. been insidious within Star Wars. Like, people were complaining even the original Star Wars, like, hey, aren't there any black people in space? And that's why we got Lando Calrissian, because mm. they were like, oh, shit, yeah. They didn't just get Lando Calrissian, they got Billy T. Williams. Who was one of the <laughs> coolest motherfuckers ever. But uh, and, and indeed, the newer movies have done uh, a lot in order to make sure that mm. there are there is way more representation. He, so yeah. that, that moral absolutism isn't as keyed into... Or that is to say, doesn't seem uh, directly connected to the color of your skin. Yeah. That yeah. that should not even yeah, well, be a thing. And that it, should and never it, be, even accidentally, that yeah, shouldn't be a it, thing. it doesn't even read until, frankly, I think until like the Disney films, mm. when uh, you'll you'll notice that like the Empire, the, like, the bad guy characters, mm. the, the fascists, are, are all white men. Oh, well, that, that was always the part. case. That was always the case. They, yeah, they, and they were they were specifically in, modeled after Nazis. It, uh, modeled after, after Nazis, but also they're all British actors, so yeah. there's that kind of like American colonialism thing as well, yeah. the, the Revolutionary War. Yeah, um, Brit, Brit, that's definitely Brits play being, villains in your movies because yeah. of the Revolutionary War. <laughs> because of the debt of honor to General Lafayette. Uh, but... Um, yeah, when you watch something like The Force Awakens, you'll notice that the the good guys, the rebels, uh, mm-hmm. what are the rebels called in the, the Force Awakens? I think Awakens? they're the resistance. Resistance, yeah, the potato, potato. But um, yeah, they move from rebellion to the resistance. You'll notice that it's it's a much more diverse group. It's it's men and women of all races, whereas the majority of the people you see on the bad side are. Uh, White guys, like the, yeah. the white guys, are, are like white guys that are creatures, because there's uh, <laughs> there's what, whatever uh, Snoke is. I, uh, he's he's an alien of some kind, right? But he he he's played like an old white dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Like, uh, and I, indeed, I, and indeed, who is it? Who is it at the beginning of the Force Awakens mm. who actually takes off their white helmet mm. and realizes what we're doing is horrifically wrong mm. and I must rebel. It's, it's a young black man. It's John yeah. Boyega. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who 
is fucking awesome. And if, if uh, you've yeah. been paying, paying attention to the news, wow, go John go, Boyega, go John Boyega. Right yeah, yeah, seriously, big big fan. Um, but yeah, it's it's fitting, and it actually is showing how. And I like the idea. I think that that actual character is overdue. Someone mm-hmm. who is sort of indoctrinated into that system and finding their way mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah, that's a great yeah. character, and that's something where I like how a lot of the newer movies have been trying to use the way that these divides mm. uh, are actually, well, dividing us, and how it's, we it's, can mine uh, that for, for drama and mm. subtext and themes. And it's, it's a little... It's good stuff. It's good stuff. It is a little awkward when you put it in Star Wars because yeah. its stock and trade is still that absolutism. I mean, so again, you, look at the way droids are yeah. portrayed. Like, we have characters in these movies who, if they were, if this was, if we took out all the artifice, mm. who would the droids be in a human society? They they would be slaves. They'd be slaves, and and that's they're fucked up. They're treated as such. They are property. Yeah. They're they're and that's why I'm still mad about what happened to L three and Solo, where she actually yeah. fought for droid rights, and then well, they desecrated you, her corpse. You you watch the original Star Wars and the robot, like one of the robots, it's a trash can. Like it doesn't even have human qualities. They <laughs> not talk, physically. Yeah. They talk to it like it's a human. It's okay to objectify that thing because it's not a person. It's just a little silly. But over time, we develop a connection to exactly. It. Yeah. And, and in fact, by the time we got to that joke in in uh, the Han Solo movie, yeah. It's like, well, you know, so many people have fallen in love with so many robot characters and they're using like realistic motion capture to make them a lot more human. Why would that we when be you, okay with what's happening? When all of that? a sudden you start like making the joke again, oh, well, they're actually just things after all. Like Lord Miller can make that into a good joke, but Maybe. that's a Ron Howard movie. Yeah. So they they humanized this thing in a plot point that demands that it not be humanized. It really pisses me off because that that movie in particular, and I know I've gotten some pushback on this people who read the scene differently, mm. but I've re I, I've done some research into it. I'm pretty sure mm. my way is what's actually happening here where she believes in droid rights. She doesn't want to be treated as property. She dies trying to start a droid rebellion. They save, and they save like her head or they, her brain well, or what something. What happens is they need the information inside of her in order to escape like through the galaxy. And rather than simply write the scene in which she agrees to that mm. Or they say we can just take out the information and it won't like trap you in the Millennium Falcon for forever. Uh, they she doesn't agree to that. She ends up being treated as the property that they absolutely knew she refused. She didn't want to be treated as. Mm. And indeed, if you read like the ancillary time materials, her personality does get downloaded into the Millennium Falcon. She explicitly says she wishes she doesn't want to be there. Mm. And they say you can't do it, and your mind will like gradually yeah. devolve and become the Millennium Falcon. So that by the end of the movie, when they cavalierly gamble the Millennium Falcon away, they're gambling. Her. Yeah. Like, <laughs> her brain is in there. You can do like, the mental gymnastics like a, a, a to make that not horrible if you want, but they know she's in there. They mm. have an emotional connection to her and the ship. Having them act that way makes them monsters. Mm. I, I don't like them anymore. Yeah. And the Millennium Falcon has become a desecrated tomb. Mm. That's fucked up. <laughs> uh, to, to go off on a tangent for a minute. Yeah. Um, Oh, another uh, one. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, we, we go off on a lot. But no, yeah. I think this this all ties back into distant drums about yeah. sort of the, the unsavory things that filter through Star Wars mm-hmm. and the origins uh, where they come from can be a little bit a little bit nasty. Uh, mm-hmm. I say a little bit nasty. Insanely nasty. Murderously nasty. To underplay how horrendously racist it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, not trying to underplay the actual racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, to t- think about the Millennium Falcon, just to take us off on, on, on a side. Okay. Uh, when I was growing up, 
uh, I didn't watch Star Wars when I was a kid. I didn't see it until I, I had already graduated high school. But uh, a lot of my friends did watch Star Wars, and they loved Star Wars, and they had all of the toys. And uh, in fact, some of the the like background monsters don't have names unless you had the toy. Yep. Like they're not named in the script. They're not named on screen, but everybody knows their names because they had the toys. Yeah, exactly. So. Whether or not that counts as their like canonical name, I they, guess they that kept counts it for now, all the, but, yeah. they kept those things for all the literature. It's, um, it's canonical, yeah. I know they say the the name Millennium Falcon in the movies. They yeah, actually they name do. they name the ship, and um, they talk about it because like it, it it's the ship that made the Kessel Run and so and so. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's a, a famous ship. Yeah, Han, Han Solo says it's really really fast, but it doesn't work. So he's he's actually kind of a blowhard. <laughs> when, when they actually turned it into a, like an actually fast ship, it's like, well, that's not fun. I thought it was supposed to be his lie. It should be a slow rust bucket. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be a good ship. But uh, it's a fast ship, the, but only he can make it work. That's the gag. I don't remember hearing the phrase Millennium Falcon until like the the re releases. Mm. Like when they came out in like the ni- like the nineties, when uh-huh. people started say- when they started showing the ship, and people say, "Oh, look, there's the, Mil- the Millennium Falcon." It was like, "Oh, wait, that's we always called that just the Star Wars ship." No, people or, called the Millennium Falcon, dude. Well, my theory about this: the reason I never heard my friends say the phrase Millennium Falcon. First of all, I have a very bad memory, so that's probably a big part of it. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's highlight that right off the top of the bat. But, but uh, <laughs> we, we have, but you know, when having conversations about Star Wars, this was called the Star Wars ship or the Flying Saucer ship. Mm-hmm. My friends never called this the Millennium Falcon. Okay. Uh, they referred to X-wing fighters. I remember that, mm-hmm. and Tie fighters. I remember that. They had those toys, yeah. But the Millennium Falcon was nameless. Okay, I think that's a very specific now, memory, and I don't think everyone has that. I have memories from from nineteen eighty three to nineteen ninety seven when they did the special editions. Around there, yeah. Uh, it was yeah January, February, and March of nineteen ninety seven. Okay. They they re remastered all of the special effects and put in okay. new digital effects. That's when sort of the Star Wars fandom really started to exist as we know it today. Oh, and that's a when, big kickstart. And that's yeah. when I think they started to write like all of the source books. That's when things were on home video. People started to watch these things dozens upon dozens of times. And I think it was only then that the Millennium Falcon grew in importance. I'm going to I'm going to fight you on this. Okay, I don't think this is that great. I think I think right. your experience with Star Wars uh, as someone who wasn't like a big action I, I, movie I was, nerd I was at a the big time. outsider. This is this is from uh, an outsider's perspective. I think it's rather specific. I think there's a nugget of truth in what you're saying. I think there mm-hmm. is certainly uh, around the time that special editions came out, interest in Star Wars got renewed in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Wars hadn't had new like motion picture television content in around 10 years by the time mm-hmm. they did the remastered editions um we had a couple of animated tv series we did droids on cancel too soon not that long mm-hmm. ago holds up surprisingly well yeah, it was a better better show than yeah. i expected uh, the ewok movies were released on television uh the first one is as bad as you've heard the second one is not and is actually pretty good um but after that star wars dwindled and there were toys and video games and books and comics but those were ancillary markets. Those were geared towards uh, kids and the hardcore geeky audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Wars was still very, very popular. Every time they re-released it on home video, people bought it. It was an enormously successful franchise, but it was a franchise that had ended. Yeah. And that's something franchises used to do. They <laughs> remember, used to end every once in a while. that happened? Yeah, except for like Godzilla and James Bond, they would end after a while. Mm-hmm. Just the interest would diminish a little, or people would move on with their careers and not make any more of them. And even though they were still popular, you know, Wizard of Oz is still selling DVD copies, but they just aren't currently making Wizard of Oz movies, so it's part of the past now. Mm-hmm. 
Star Wars was briefly, for about 10 years, part of the pop culture past. Then it became the present again. And that's when I think you're right that there was a renewed interest and a renewed uh, uh, injection like, of energy yeah, into just, the fandom. Uh, I just think there was a bigger attention to detail later. I know, but I don't think the Millennium Falcon was part of that. Everyone mm. I knew knew it was the Millennium Falcon. Okay. Although when I was very young, I thought it was the Ammonium Falcon. Ammonium Falcon? Yeah, I don't know why I thought. No, Falcon. <laughs> you said Falcum. Ammonium Falcon? No, I said the Ammonium Falcon. Falcon. Okay. I thought it was Ammonium. You know, like when you, like the, the chemical? Yeah, yeah. It makes as much sense as Millennium. <laughs> what, there's what a thousand kids? years worth of Falcons in there? How does that work? Mm. It's kind of a nonsense word, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds cool, but mm. it doesn't make any sense. Um, so, but anyway, uh, back to Distant Drums. Mm. Uh, and I don't want to, we, we can move on from it, but I want to talk about two two elements of the movie before we, we wrap this one up. Uh, one is uh, the character in the film who, uh, you already told me the actress who played her. <laughs> Her name Mary Alden. Mary Alden. The character Mary... is named Judy Beckett. Okay, Judy Beckett is a character I actually quite like in this movie, mm. where uh, she is uh, strong. She's strong-willed. She has her own personality. Um, she doesn't let men dominate her. Uh, because, as we learn over the course of the film, she actually has a tragic backstory in which she was... Based... They don't say, say it in too much detail, but the implication is that she was probably forced into a marriage she wasn't interested in, yeah, or, yeah. or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and her big dream is to return to her hometown and get revenge. These people like killed her father in order to subjugate her. And... She was like, yeah, they say they rolled, he was, he got hit with a stagecoach and a stagecoach doesn't leave whiplashes. So I'm going to come back with a whip and I'm going to kill them. And I'm like, why aren't we watching your movie? You sound like such a more interesting character. And Gary, Coop- Gary Cooper, dude. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm with her and much like, uh, uh, even though she's spectacularly interesting, she just doesn't get the screen time. Kind of like Leia in the first Star Wars movie, where every time you see her, she's awesome, but she's not in it as much as you remember. Yeah. Because it's way more about Luke and then later Han. Mm. So she's making all of her scenes count, and that's cool. But what infuriates me is a speech that Gary Cooper gives her at the end. When he's talking to her about how revenge is bad. Mm. You shouldn't go after revenge. And she finds out that... He, uh, his wife died and she was killed. And her first thought is, oh, she was killed by the Seminoles. And that's why you're so eager to go to war. And he says, no, actually they were killed by, uh, soldiers like of American soldiers. Hmm. Um, and she says, oh my God, that's absolutely horrible. Why aren't you fighting American soldiers? And then he says the most fucked up thing where he, he actually argues Honestly, or at least earnestly, mm. that what could I do? They were young, they were drunk, and they were racist. <laughs> That's the reason to be angry, not the reason not to be. Uh-huh. What the hell is the matter with this movie? It, it, I can't, yeah. every single thing, the movie just self destructed right there. It was bad enough. <laughs> and then I'm watching this, I'm like, this is the message? Mm. This is your message, you that's, fuckers! That's the message. Yeah, the, this sort of... Jesus Christ! That, that's something else that we need to, to just get rid of in terms of, mm-hmm. not just in films, but in culture in general. This weird sort of... Couple of bad apples. The, the couple of bad apples looking out for the, your fellow man. Mm-hmm. Now, when I hear the word loyalty, 
especially when it's like loyalty within a profession or loyalty mm-hmm. among two f- male friends. Mm-hmm. All I hear is, I know you're going to be committing a lot of horrible crimes and I'm going to cover for you. Yeah. It's like this criminal code. Yeah. When you, when people say loyalty, are you going to be loyal? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? Like, am I going to lie for you? Am I going to like get the police mm-hmm. off your back? What are you doing? Yeah. How far does this go? My for, quote, me, loyalty? for me, loyalty always goes as far as, mm-hmm. but if you do something crazy fucked up, morality is more important than you. Yeah, yeah, like common decency is more important well, than our or friendship or if, our connection through if, if, if employment. Like, or if, if like a company says, "Will you be loyal to the company?" That means if somebody approaches you with a better offer, you believe in our ethos enough to say no to them. That's like a positive kind of loyalty. That's one example of positive loyalty. Presuming yes. that the company you're working for is not exploiting you, exactly, um, or exploiting anyone else, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, but yeah, when that kind of we are men, we're loyal to each other, we got each other's backs uh-huh. is just a way of saying we're going to let each other commit crimes and make sure nobody suffers any consequences. And, and once you just have that attitude, mm. and again, I'm I'm not the far from the first person to bring this up, mm. uh, but uh, you know, once you have that attitude, oh, it's just a couple of bad apples, mm. you are forgetting the second part of that expression. Which is that one bad apple, just one, hmm. spoils, spoils the, the whole, whole barrel, bunch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because once you have those bad apples, and once you say that's fine, all of a sudden you are complicit. Mm-hmm. And if you agree to fight for the principles, or or even just work to uh, uh, promote the principles of a group, and those prince and that group, because of those bad apples, doesn't have them anymore, mm. you become part of an evil machine. That's some fucked up shit. Yep. And it's just right there. And this movie is telling the audience in no uncertain terms. It comes in a, 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 a speech that's supposed to be moving, spoken by Gary Cooper, uh, who who I think big, he hadn't done... He, had he done Hide in High Noon yet? I don't think he uh, had. I think it was 54. I think he did a little later. Like, But he, he's, he's an actor with so much dignity. And mm. he's played so many characters with dignity that when you put something that fucking wrong-headed and ugly in his mouth and you encourage audiences not to take it anything beyond face value mm-hmm. you start running into a lot of problems because people just start learning that that's part of the cultural framework in which we live and that should not be the case yeah. Yeah. so Distant Drums is yeah it gave us the Wilhelm scream I like the Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm scream is funny. But here's the thing with everything else beyond it. It's part of a fucked up history of fiction, in particular pulp fiction, simplified fiction, Mm. that has gone undiagnosed by a lot of people. There are Mm. people who have been complaining about it since day one. They have been shouted down by a lot Mm. of other people who said Mm. it's escapist entertainment. It's not a big deal. It is, and it always has been. Because and when you what, say that these kinds of when movies... You, when you're watching these escapist... Enter- it's actually more important in escapist entertainment mm-hmm. to talk about these things. Because you're not because encouraged to think. You're not encouraged to think, and you are consuming them way more easily than you would otherwise. Yeah, and especially especially when movies are like uh, presented to younger audiences mm-hmm. who aren't coming at them with a firm awareness of different kinds of political discourse and may be introduced to ideas and imagery for the very first time in your film. There is responsibility that comes with that. So when people tell me, you know, you need to turn off your brain 
and watch the movie, what I'm hearing is I'm willing to accept literally anything they tell me as long as I'm in a theater. Yeah, yeah. And that's dangerous. And that's something that Star Wars has struggled with. There have mm. been absolute, legitimate, real complaints about the way that Star Wars has handled representation in a variety of ways. There have been definite moves to improve upon that, but we're still struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the way that we, uh, you know, had Rose Tico and then they abandoned Rose Tico. Mm-hmm. That's sending a gross message that this type of character is optional. It's fucked well, up. Rose Tico and uh, the John Boyega character. Yeah, fit to a lesser like, extent, but yes. Like he, yeah. he, he was the protagonist until he wasn't. Well. <laughs> In Daisy the, Ridley is also the, the they, they were they're, they're, co-leads, the two of them. I think they're, they were they're Babs and Buster Bunny. And I think uh, John Boyega got less to do in Rise of Skywalker, but Rose Tico got literally nothing to do. Absolutely nothing to do. Yeah, so it's fucked up. But um, in any case, when we talk about the history of cinema, and when we talk about the history of society, sometimes we have to have difficult conversations about the way that these, uh, uh, these stories and these cultural movements... And these facets of our society that sometimes we don't question enough, we have to have difficult conversations about how they came across. And uh, yeah, we've had some light conversations here on episode zero, but uh, rather unexpectedly, again, neither of us had seen this movie, Mm -hmm. uh, Distant Drums ended up keying into some very salient things that we need to talk about right now. Um, So Mm -hmm. um, thank you everybody for listening to episode zero uh, this week. Um, It's a real weird rough time right now uh and we just want to make a a a, a say with absolute if you hadn't figured it out already mm. black lives matter we 100 support everyone out there mm. uh, who is protesting right now uh please be safe please uh take care of yourselves and each other if you can't protest right now do what you can do uh, donate if you can um and uh we will be here uh if you need some you know mental health breaks <laughs> yeah. with our podcast. This was a very heady episode, but I think it was a conversation that needed to be had for a variety of reasons. Um, but we'll be back next week on episode zero with uh, the original uh, uh, hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> We're going to be talking about uh, the classic best picture winner, Casablanca, which has a lot of other salient things uh, to say about what's going on right now. Uh, you know the thing about Casablanca? It's a good movie. It's quite good. Uh, it's, yeah. I, it's, it's, have, uh, have you heard of this Casablanca movie? It's yeah, quite good. It's, it's um, pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's, I actually have a few issues with it, but they're, 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 <laughs> we'll have that conversation next week. But it's still, it's, it's still an excellently made I, film. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't contest its reputation as one of the best of all American films. Mm. Uh, it's really, really great. And yeah, it gave us uh, Rick's Cafe American, which was very, very much the bar owned by B. Arthur in Star Wars. <laughs> The most Eisley Cantina. The most Eisley Cantina. People probably know it best as the most Eisley Cantina. It's the BR. Uh, there are other elements of Casablanca that have filtered their way uh, into Star Wars, and we'll talk about that uh, in more detail next week here on Episode Zero, where we talk about the movies that inspired Star Wars. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really, really appreciate uh, uh, you taking the time uh, to talk about film history with us today. Uh, we have a ton of other shows here on uh, the Critical Ham Network. Some of those shows took a hiatus this week so that we could all focus on what's happening in the world right now. Uh, those shows will return next week. Um, so we apologize. We will get back to We've Got Mail. We'll have a big double-sized episode 
of critically acclaimed with lots of new movie releases mm. uh, to review. We also have our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of original uh, uh, and exclusive content uh, where we were reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in production order, every single episode of Firefly. These are mm. each getting their own podcast uh, per episode. Uh, we're talking about uh, movies and uh, TV that should be on Disney+. Plus. But it's not. We just released a, a latest episode of Only the Best where we talk about uh, every single film that was ever nominated for Best Picture. And we just wrapped up 1938, mm. uh, which was an interesting year. And we're about to get into 1939, which is considered one of the best years for American cinema ever. Mm. Uh, so that'll be really exciting over there, too. And we got a lot of other stuff uh, going on there as well so if you're a patron we are especially grateful to you thank you we couldn't keep doing this without you uh and um yeah just thank you so much there's so many uh so many things going on right now. Your support means the world to us. Uh, so thank you once again. Uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want to talk about, well, anything really. Uh, we'll, we'll have a big letters episode next week. So um, thanks once again. And may the force be etc. Ah! <laughs>